Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. This evening we've got Joe Eaton. Hello. And Mr. Dan Salmon. Good evening. I don't know why I like putting a Mr. in front of your name. It just works. Well, it's, it, it, it's, it's who I am. And uh, I'm Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for tuning in. Tonight, we explore the environmental impact of NFTs, those non-fungible tokens that everyone's been speaking about lately. And uh, we'll be speaking to an academic all about that. Plus... Today is the International Trans Day of Visibility. It's an annual international celebration of trans pride and awareness, recognising trans and gender diverse experiences and achievements. So in the spirit of that celebration, um, we uh, are thinking about our people in the ICT uh, world today and uh, sending them our kudos. We'll also be speaking to Fen Reliania, um, all about their work as a games maker and as a trans rep in the games world. So they're a non-binary game dev and uh, we're super excited to be having them in the latter part of the show tonight. Before we get there, there's a little bit of news. There is. Um, so you guys are familiar with uh, Boston Dynamics who are... Uh you know, a big in the research development, particularly when it comes to robots. Uh, every now and then there'll be a, a cool or terrifying video of a robot doing something cool or terrifying that will kind of go viral and everyone will be like, oh, look, Boston Dynamics have done something ridiculous again. Um, last year they started moving from the R&D space into the commercial space and they uh, released a robot that you could buy and use called Spot which um, was a $75,000 robotic dog that could march around facilities for remote inspections and it had a little arm attachment to open doors. That was last year. This yeah. is this year. They have just announced that they've got a second commercial robot called Stretch, which is, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the, the name kind of, I suppose, evokes exactly what it is. It's a box-moving bot um, which uh, for use in the warehouses and distribution centres and it's got a, a nice big arm that kind of, you know, suctions onto a box and kind of lifts it up. I mean, it's counterintuitive. It lift from above. It is. I mean, look, they possibly haven't thought too much about the OHNS of it. Um, I just feel like the bottoms of boxes are going to fall out. Absolutely. Like they definitely have not kind of thought it through. The, 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 <laughs> I'm sure they have. I'm sure they have. No, no. I'm, I'm going to say <laughs> they have. Investment. I'm going to say they haven't. I'm going to say that they haven't. But like, I mean, it's it, look. It's cool that they've you know come to the point after 28 years of doing R and D that they're actually commercialising stuff. I, I feel for the inevitable Amazon workers that will be um, shafted as a result of this. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, you mentioned OH&S and, yes, when you've got dangerous, difficult, you know, uh, physical labour sort of jobs that can be automated, we do see that there's a good reason to. And this happened to car workers a long, long time ago. It did, it did. With an initial wave of sort of arm-based robots. And while they displaced these jobs, we found that, you know, those workers did find plenty of other jobs in uh, car manufacturing. It was just less dangerous ones, less less near the hot weldy pieces and, yeah. Well, Vanessa, you and I saw um, Nicole from BifTech uh, play on uh, mm. Saturday night and um, played the, the song 
the machines will do the work so humans can have time to think. And I was just thinking, oh, what a dream. If only. <laughs> <laughs> wow, they really didn't think that one. I'm that saying whole, a lot, are they? <laughs> that whole set through, I was thinking, oh, I just don't remember these, even though I know that I heard them originally. And then that one came on. I went, I remember this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a tune. Uh, but yeah, no, look, it's, it's um, you know, some interesting stuff that these guys have put together in terms of, you know, automating and, and you know, commercial robot development. We'll Definitely. see what happens next. And, you yeah. know, if, if it does, as you you know, it's probably a good thing that people aren't breaking their backs if they're lifting uh, heavy mm. things. So. And um, having mentioned those Amazon workers, we would be remiss not to mention how Amazon workers are really attempting to unionise in the Absolutely. moment in the States. More power to them. Absolutely. Definitely, yeah. definitely. Ho- hopefully the, uh, the vote gets up. More on that front um, when we get a bit more news about it in more detail. I think it's it's worth a bit of a deep dive. Absolutely. In other news, the NBA, as in the National Basketball Association in the States, has been getting in on NFT, i.e. non-fungible tokens, with their Top Shot program. What does all of this mean? So Top Shot is at a high level... Um, making the best basketball shots that have been made, um, turning those into non-fungible tokens and making them available to um, really wild and cashed up, I would say, but Bitcoined up or Ethereumed up um, fans. <laughs> it's that, That's epic. It is pretty amazing and it sort of shows how big the bubble is in this nft space at the moment i mean it is frothy people are <laughs> leaping in they are three-pointing in it, it, oh I, I like what you do there it does I really try <laughs> yeah because because I'm, I'm possibly showing my age here to say that i was of the basketball card collecting generation so like for me this is a huge thing and it, it almost is enough for me to investigate non-fungible tokens purely so i could i'm not even into basketball anymore but it's like you know they they've turned it into a commodity and all of a sudden i want to buy, i want to buy you know scotty pippen's dunk well yeah the cards are still super tradable and um, worth a lot of money so yeah that that has continued and i think you know they're tapping into a culture of collecting and trading that exists already so it does make sense it, it makes me think of Kara Swisher's comment that you know if it can be digitized it will be mm. uh, do, do, i mean it's it's possibly a little bit crystal bally to ask this question but do you think that the froth is going to bubble away or are we just going to see NFTs just getting more and Why more Why kick that around amongst ourselves when we have an expert coming in as our first guest later this evening? Absolutely. Let's, let's, let's pose that to Professor Yang Yang. Let's see if I can get past um, number wang as my understanding <laughs> of, um, of cryptocurrency. <laughs> I think we can do that. We possibly can. We'll mention that a bit later. Hey, in other news, the South Australian government has admitted to redirecting web users through a Liberal Party domain. Did you two catch this today? So it's, um, I mean, it's a little bit worrying, isn't it? So um, the South Australian government, which um, has done exactly that. So an investigation that was done by the ABC uh, found up to 100 examples of where state government links, so, you know, sa.gov. Um, were redirecting very quickly through um, a domain stateliberalleader.nationbuilder.com. Now, for those who don't know, Nation Builder is a platform that political parties use for uh, community organising and collecting of data for, you know, uh, members and potential members and people who sign up to mailing lists, that kind of thing. And it, it was, I think, initially um, was used by the Obama campaign. Yeah. And it, you know... Obviously, the Obama campaign was incredibly successful when it comes to its online presence yeah. and digital things. So it, it was adopted 
reasonably quickly by um, other mainstream parties. And so kind of allowing them to build their own knowledge graph on, on the electorate. Yeah, and they, yeah. Get, they get a nice big database of, you know, people who uh, support them and in some cases people who don't support them. Now, this is worrying because, you know, obviously you would want to opt in to be providing your data, particularly to a political party that you may or may not be affiliated or supportive of. Um, so, yeah, look, it's, it is a Yeah, bit... just best practices and, and then actual execution, you know, both require being very transparent around who your data is going to and why you're collecting it and what it's for. You know, the, there's lots of um, there's lots of regulatory uh, stuff that covers this now, so Ab- they're required to Ab- do this better. Absolutely. And, and you know, speaking, you know, disclosure, I, 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 my day job is in the public service. Uh, there is a s- distinct or there should be a distinct uh, separation between the public service and, you know, the business of government and the politics of government. There's, you know, there is absolutely a demarcation there uh, whereby... Party politics does should not factor into anything when it comes to the delivery of government. So if I'm going to some, you know, I can't even talk. I'm so <laughs> angry. No, no. The, if if you were going to a service provision, so like you know the health service for South Australia website, their coronavirus, for example, um, that shouldn't be used as a way to mine data for a political party to send things to. It's just yes. it's it's yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting I'm getting I... worked up about this. I just really want to know how it happened. Like, as someone who is um, involved in putting information on websites for governments, mm-hmm. how? Well, that's a that's a very good question. I'm sure that further investigation. I'm, I'm trying to scan the article here to see if that that question can be answered. I look forward to the follow up articles. Yes, yeah. no, I think def- it's early days at the moment. Yes. We haven't we haven't yet heard the disclaimers about oh how this was an innocent mistake. No, and and you know when you see quotes that say it isn't typical in my experience and it's quite concerning. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Look, I think I think it's pretty safe to say that there's been some shenanigans going on there. Um, Excellent. Watch this space. Excellent word. Professor Yuang Xiang is the Dean of Digital Research at Swinburne University of Technology, where he is leading investigation of blockchain initiatives. We welcome him to the show tonight to talk about Bitcoin, NFTs, blockchain, and the potential environmental threat that they might pose. Welcome, Professor. Hello, how are you? Very well, thanks. How are you this evening? Good, thank you. Glad to hear it. We've got Joe, Dan, and I'm Vanessa in studio. Uh, great to have you on the line. So, to begin with, let's let's start with the basics. How do you explain the concept of non fungible tokens or NFTs to people? I would say um, the underlying technology is called uh, blockchain. So, um, I probably uh, have to spend uh, one minute to give you uh, some ideas about uh, what blockchain is. Um, Blockchain is a specific type of uh, database, so uh, it um, stores some information, um, but uh, in different places. So that means um, uh, the information is stored um, distributedly in different places, and if you change one information, one piece of information in in a certain uh, location. It doesn't actually change a lot, so uh, the information is still there. So this feature uh, gives us a blockchain a uh, very strong uh, security. That, that means um, um, you actually can't uh, reverse 
the information on this database. So uh, it doesn't really matter if you erase anything. It's actually just there. So um, I think that is the key uh, of the feature that uh, blockchain has. So um, the Bitcoin or NFTs are all built on top of the blockchain technology. So um, that ensures that the information stored on the chain uh, cannot actually be compromised by any uh, malicious users. Uh, it could be um, attackers, could be uh, some uh, malicious uh, customers, but uh, anything there, uh, it has to be genuine. So uh, I, I guess that is the key information I want to present. That is a nice, succinct explanation there. So it's a bit like carving it in stone, perhaps. Yeah. So as we've seen blockchain technology mature and cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, which are based on the blockchain, take off, how has our thinking about the broader implications of using these technologies also matured? Um, the most um, advanced applications um, could be um, the, the coins, so uh, Bitcoin is one of the coins. So uh, you know, um, the the because um, the the immutable uh, features of blockchain, um, the many uh, companies are producing uh, the coins. Uh, so that means that they can actually publish the the digital currencies by themselves. So um, I guess that is the uh, most popular use of our blockchain, and that, that gives the, uh, the issuer uh, some power to say that uh, we, this is our currency, and if you use this currency, uh, you, you get some, uh, some uh, guarantee that uh, the, the, uh, the transactions um, could, um, could be guaranteed by some, some form Although it, it is not uh, not a country's guarantee, but it, you still got some uh, forms of a guarantee. So um, blockchain is actually um, a, a very powerful tool to guarantee that. De uh, definitely, um, pr Professor. We you know we've heard of about about blockchain and Bitcoin and other coins and cryptocurrencies in general now for a number of years. And, you know, it's gotten to the point where it's part of, I suppose, the popular culture, this idea of, you know, Bitcoin can make you rich. Um, but you've been doing a lot of, you've been doing research into sort of the, the broader environmental implications of um, the, the, the popularity of blockchain and Bitcoin and other, other cryptocurrencies in particular. Did you want to talk us through um, why it is that um, blockchain might have these kind of effects? Um, yes. Um, um, I think the, the, it all um, came from uh, the initial design of blockchain, of, uh, of uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin chain. So, um, you know, um, you know uh, initially, um, when um, the, uh, the Bitcoin uh, was designed, it has a mechanism which is called a proof-of-work mechanism. So um, um, if I talk to the general audience, I would say that this is a kind of a mechanism that, uh, um, that will um, um, verify uh, some transactions um, by different different nodes uh, distributedly uh, from, uh, from all over the world. So um, if a transaction happens, uh, all of the world has to approve 
the that kind of a transaction. And uh, this mechanism, which is called a proof-of-work mechanism, involves a huge amount of uh, computational effort from uh, different computers uh, all over the world. So um, suppose that um, uh, all those computers are working very hard, uh, definitely they, they consume energy, right? They, they con consume uh, electricity. So, um, so that is the root of the environmental uh, issue. So uh, some research shows that uh, one Bitcoin transaction would generate the uh, carbon dioxide equivalent to 707,000 swipes of a Visa credit card. So this is significant. And if we look at this problem um, annually, um, the carbon dioxide uh, released from uh, the Bitcoin Bitcoin network could be comparable to the whole New Zealand uh, release, which is about uh, 37 million tons of carbon dioxide. So again, this is a really significant. So um, I think nowadays uh, people have already uh, paid a lot of attention to this issue um, because um, the, the different chains, uh, including Bitcoin, uh, including Ethereum and different other uh, other chains, um, they consume a lot of energy. If, if we still maintain this so-called proof of uh, proof of work uh, mechanism um, to to ensure the consensus among transactions, so um, I guess uh, that is a significant issue, and um, we probably should have to do something to save the energy for for the uh, for the Bitcoin and also for the blockchain uh, technologies. We uh, saw in some of your research, you mentioned that popular Bitcoin Ethereum's annual energy use is roughly on par with all of Ireland's annual energy use. And I think these sort of comparisons are really helpful because it, it can be difficult for us to visualise the, the scale of the problem. Um, what do you think uh, the way forward is here? Is it ethical to own a cryptocurrency or an NFT? Um, I would probably would not be able to comment on uh, if it is ethical or not, because um, it, it is a reality. Some people own the coins, <laughs> and, and and they 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 mine the coins by themselves and use the the, the energy to mine the the, the coins. Uh, we I have to go to um, a different department to get the uh, ethical take on this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, but I guess uh, the, the governments from the different countries can play some role uh, here because uh, they the governments do have some power to regulate such kind of activities. Uh, so, for example, they, they can put some uh, regulation on the mining companies, uh, Bitcoin mining companies, it's not, not the physical mining companies. And they can also uh, put some regulations on the mining computer hardware manufacturers. And uh, they could uh, do something on the cryptocurrency exchanges. Uh, and uh, they, they could, um, could do uh, those uh, um, um, policies or uh, some regulations on how we can make um, those uh, uh, mining activities uh, less, um, less impactful to the environment. Um, so 
I, I think there are, there are different ways. And from a technology side, I guess there could be different mechanisms. So, um, for example, at Swinburne University, we did design some consensus mechanism that can um, maintain the same level of uh, security and privacy, but significantly reduce the uh, requirement of the computational uh, effort. So um, th there are two ways. Uh, one is the, the, uh, from the, the like a, like a regulation uh, point of view, and the other is from the technology point of view. Uh, absolutely, Professor. You, you, we're talking about you know the the two prongs there. Re regulation, particularly in the I suppose in the tech space, it's you know no secret that governments generally take a long time to catch up to things when it comes to regulating things in the tech space. So in the immediate term, we would be relying on in uh, on you know the private or commercial sector to do something about this. Because blockchain technology, you know, is largely kind of decentralised and unregulated, we're relying on, I guess, the goodwill of people who are using it to do it. Is the, is 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 that really going to be a, a viable way of, of of trying to fix the issue? Because I mean, you know, you look at things like Bitcoin and and NFTs, particularly when we're talking about people buying art and stuff. It's it it's attracting the kind of person who's there to make a quick buck. Is that are we are we kind of possibly barking up the wrong tree, hoping that these people might think about it an ethical way of doing this? Um, I, I guess it is very challenging um, because uh, it, it all depends on the, uh, the, the price of the coins. So uh, most recently we have seen the um, very significant rise of the uh, price of a Bitcoin. So that means um, you still got some room for making a profit by mining the coins. So as long as the, 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 there is a significant uh, gap of the prices, uh, so I, I don't think, um, I don't think it will be naturally uh, solved because uh, you know, this is a human society. Um, Humans still look, look for uh, for profit. They, they will still do, do the uh, mining activities. Um, but uh, I think it is important to raise the awareness about the environment issue. Um, and uh, we have been talking about uh, uh, the sustainable uh, planet for for uh, for many many years. And uh, we, we should also um, uh, raise the awareness uh, that. Uh, the, the environmental issue that is caused by the cons consumption of the electricity um, by the blockchains. So uh, I think we, we should have um, more effort on educating people. Um, the, the right thing is to actually, from the long-term perspective, we still have the responsibility to protect our Earth. We are hearing from a lot of people who are interested in NFTs in particular, um, artists, artists um, are driving the charge towards eco-NFTs, um, investigating the sort of things that you were talking about there, like the consensus mechanisms. Um, what other types of approaches have you seen to eco-NFTs other than just buying carbon credits? Um I think if you're talking about the, uh, the consensus mechanisms, um, there, are, there are different types of uh, consensus mechanisms. Mm. Um, uh, 
it could be a proof of work, it could be proof of stake, it could be many other consensus mechanisms. And do you think that government backing some of these um, cryptocurrencies, like we're starting to see a lot of in the States, is that a solution there? Um, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's honest. fair. That's fair. It's pretty uh, emergent, isn't know. it? Yeah, yeah. And I, uh, we, we don't know uh, yet uh, how how powerful the, the the government actions could be. So uh, it, it's still early to say uh, how how effective that could be. Is there a strong point of view on whether having the metadata stored on chain versus off chain has a higher environmental impact? Um, I think that is uh, only a uh, technical issue. Um, As long as we have enough uh, storage, say, for example, if we got, uh, uh, say, uh, uh, some uh, uh, cloud-based storage solutions, um, you know, nowadays the uh, cloud-based solutions is very very cheap already. Mm -hmm. So uh, as long as we we can uh, link the on-chain information to those cloud-based information, then I, I don't think that would be a huge problem. It, it is just a, a kind of a matter of cost and efficiency. And nowadays, the, the bandwidth is no longer a problem. Uh, everyone has the access to the very fast uh, broadband. So, um, yeah, it, 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 it's, uh, it, 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 it's not a, a huge issue here. Mm. Well, if any of our listeners are interested in solving the complex issues uh, behind the environmental threat of Bitcoin and blockchain and NFTs, they could do worse than to uh, explore the offerings in digital research at the Swinburne University of Technology. Professor Yuang Xiang, thank you so much for speaking with us this evening. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Have a good evening. Thank you. Triple R. Fenreliania is a non-binary game dev, who's unfortunately from Sydney, uh, who makes short, weird games about strong emotions. They've been making games since high school, where someone had installed Game Maker on the school computers. It's a tale as old as time. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Great to have you with us. Um, So we've got Dan and Joe and I'm Vanessa in studio, and uh, we wanted to know what is it about games that lets you express emotions in a deep way, and how do you go about doing that in your games? Yeah, so, like, the first thing I want to say is just as all mediums have their own strengths, there's sort of a tendency to say, like, oh, games are super important because of interactivity or something. Um, All mediums have their own strengths. For me... Games are uh, the best place to express myself because I tend towards nonverbal communication. Um, I like experience emotions and very physical sensations, and I've learned how to sort of translate those into uh, the way that people interact with games um, and try and get the same sort of feelings uh, through those interfaces. I love that, and I apologise that we're, you know, interacting with you tonight through the the media of radio because that's not your preferred your preferred way. Um, oh, it's all right. I'm very practised. I wish we could be in in a virtual game environment as well. That would be that would be really fun. We have twitched on the show occasionally. <laughs> mm. So, how, how how did you get into 
games and and as as someone who you know is is non-binary did you find that it, it was a medium that spoke to you in a particular way in that in that context or was it something that is that you always thought of as separate and you were able to tell this tell the story as a kind of happy happy coincidence um yeah so like i like i said um i started uh making games with game maker because someone had installed them on the library computer so good um and i basically just like made a bunch of stuff with friends and like we're showing showing things off to each other um and it was like a really a really good way to like learn programming without having to worry about programming <laughs> um uh, so like uh, i don't know how uh how much game dev- development has like meshed with like my non-binary experience i know um through the people i've met in game dev uh, I, you know, that's how I discovered I was non-binary in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and there have definitely been a lot of games that have, like, spoken to that experience for me, like, playing them. Yeah, do you think um, that there's something that is tied to a lot of games, which is about that forming of identity within a, a neutral space, or, like, a different space, I guess? Yeah, the because because they often allow you to inhabit this sort of role in a really uh, like tangible manner. Mm. Um, there's often like a really they're really good for like letting you explore different avenues and like giving you experiences that you maybe didn't expect you would click with or feel about yourself. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot um, of us enjoy that about about games. You know, hopping mm. in a body that moves differently and that we can customise in lots of different ways um, is pretty appealing. Yeah. Um, and, and, like, especially when you see, like, you see, like, people who you realise you're identifying with and, like, in experiences that you're identifying with, you're, like, starting to, to piece things together and, like, it, it's a nice way to... I guess, test the waters of, like, what would it be like if I was this? And, like, (laughs) yeah. I'm just picturing some orc characters I've played before right now and uh, (laughs) just, like, yes, what would it like to be strong and, yeah, have a big mace? Um, But if we flip back to game making, um, if (laughs) someone came to you and said, I'm interested in getting in, what sort of tools would you recommend to them as entry-level kind of gateway game-making tools? Um, so there's like quite a wide variety. Mm. Like I, you know, the first thing I would suggest is just try whatever like looks interesting to you. Um, uh, some of the like really common and like really good entry points are stuff like Twine. If you're interested in in writing primarily, um, there's Bitsy. If you wanna if you wanna have like short little low interaction things that like it, it's really easy to make something in Bitsy, but it allows you to, like, express yourself in, in like, really significant way. Um, there are, you know, Unity and Unreal are both... There's plenty of resources for both of them. Um, Game Maker still exists. <laughs> uh, and there's, like... Basically, like, look around and, and, and ask people. So, um, so no jumping into Unity uh, straight at moment dot? Yeah, I, I wouldn't suggest it. If you're going to jump straight into something, I would jump straight into, um, uh, like, if you're going to jump straight into a 3D engine, I would jump into Unreal because you yes. can 
you can use the blueprints ah. and you don't have to do any coding. Like I'm a, I'm a coder primarily and I use blueprint in Unreal because it's just so much easier. Cool. Uh, so your work can be pretty satirical. With the game jam description in search for the first uh, cisgender protagonist on itch, and also in your game, he was by Fenrilliania on itch. Do you think you've captured the mood of trans representation in games at the moment? Um, yeah, so like there's sort of two layers to it, right? There's there's like the the trans mood towards how representation is is done by non-trans people, which I think everyone I showed the uh, the search for the first cisgender protagonist page to did a bit of a fist bump and a <laughs> chuckle. It's certainly very funny. Yeah, because um, you know it, it basically came out of studios um, claiming to have the the first trans yeah. protagonist, which may be true in like large scale games but blatantly untrue for games as a whole. Like, there have been trans people making trans games forever. So, um... Oh, no. Erasure by AAA Games? Never. (laughs) Not once. I never heard of it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, like... uh, So, like... Yeah, I I, I feel like... uh, Writing is, like, one of my, like, secret backdoor skills, um, and satire in particular. But for... for, in, In terms of, like trans representation like by trans people in their games it's sort of like I notice like the they sort of come into three moods um one is is the the sort of sarcastic punk stuff like like he was and anything that would be submitted to the game jam where it's like it's fueled by this frustration at like so many baffling misunderstandings and stumbles at every step of the way mm. that you just need to vent at how absurd it is it's it's um like rebellious and basically kicking ignorance in the face and hoping that someone wakes up mm, and i love art as rebellion or art as catharsis it's um yeah yeah there's something immediately uh recognizable about that relatable about that exactly and like it's a lot of uh, like satire and, and sarcasm in particular like it's so easy to understand when it's so blunt like you that you you don't have to worry about subtlety you just (laughs) slap the player across the face or something and they're like haha (laughs) so um that's definitely like i feel like that's definitely the the primary thing that gets surfaced at least because it's relatable to anyone really and it's like yeah i agree like yeah go fight for things but there's also definitely like a, a genre of like sad, scared, vulnerable trans games. It's like venting fears, being vulnerable and like hoping to be proven wrong. Like Mm. a lot of desperate cries for help, basically. Oh, that takes so much courage. Yeah. And it's, it's like, they don't hold back for the sake of the player. They're not afraid to (laughs) dive into the depths of despair. And they're often not interested in happy endings. And if they are, they're more like, tinged with fear that it won't happen or like hoping it happens but thinking it can't um they're all like they're very heavy and like Mm. heartbreaking um and important for the people who make them um and also like as a bit of a sort of 
group mourning sort of thing. But there's also like a really rare but like very like small scale celebrated kind of trans game, which is the peaceful loving games. And they're like, I, I, most people won't know about them. Um, I can't name one off the top of my head. I'm <laughs> certain I've played them, but like... Micro genre. They're, yeah, they're like made for ourselves. They're, they're made for other trans people. They're full of solidarity and love and like care for one another. They're like painting hope and comfort out of like the hope that like this gives someone a better day. This like helps someone like feel like something's going to go right. Um, that's so heartwarming like, to know that that's out there for a specific yeah, community. And, yeah, and, like, they, they cover, like, deep and serious topics. They're not always happy topics. There's, like, remembrance of people we've lost. Um, but sometimes it's dedicated to the people we love and celebrating and, infirmi- uh, and affirming our own personal identities. Um, but they're always, like, they always bring a certain kind of, like, peace and appreciation and, and like, pride. And what kind of uh, support is there for gender-diverse and trans game makers? Um, is there anything from publishers or from government or anywhere? Honestly, not a whole lot. Like, there are conventions that sometimes... Like, conventions will often set aside, like, a, a few desks or chaos slots, um and provide them for free to marginalized developers. Um, I had one of those back when GX was a thing, GX Sydney. Um, but those require that you have a game that's far enough along to show off at a convention, and you need to be able to get to the convention mm-hmm. and have the time to demo it. So it's helpful. It, it's good. It's um, material, but it only really helps people who are already yeah. along the pathway to some kind of success. Um, there are some grants or funds, like I know there's the Wings Fund, um, which is specifically for women and marginalised genders, which I don't know if that includes trans men. Um, but most funds only really invest in games they expect to be profitable enough to make a return. Like, they're not, they're not charities, they're nice funds. <laughs> um, so, like, again, they, they do offer... Uh, material help, but you have to be you have to have a large enough team and scope to warrant their attention and funding, and you have to be able to produce a prototype or a demo. Um, so it's all like any of the help there is is mostly focused towards people who are already making it in some way. Um, if there are other options, I haven't heard of them, and I've asked around a few times, um, mostly out of. <laughs> hope that I could get out of full-time, well, not get out of full-time work, but uh, get out of my previous full-time job. (laughs) Um, Uh, Yeah, that sounds fair. Yeah. Yeah. So so I I, I guess that's, you know, the the biggest barrier, I guess, is not being able to, the the support is, is for people who are already on the way. Is there support out there? No, not, not really for, for anyone who's starting out. Um, not that I've been able to find. I mean, there's, there's, um, you know, there'll be programs in like unis and stuff like that that'll help just generally people make contacts and stuff. Um, there are individual people who will happily give advice and stuff, and it, it, you sort of find those people. But there's no, as far as I know, 
there's no like significant um, programs for helping people start out. Absolutely. So, 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 where where do you hope to go with your your games? You you've kind of out, out there creating amazing stuff. Where, what's the next step for you? What's your dream setup? Um, so, I mean, my dream setup in a practical sense is I really just want to have like a small five-person studio or something, just making small scope games that punch just above enough their weight uh, to, to like be sustainably small. Just keep making these small games, um, and like personally, I just really want to make games that like look a bit more like video games, but without really falling into defined genres. So like a so like AI generated images has like oh yeah, that looks like a cat, but I can't point to the whiskers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and just like. Games that are, yeah, they're identifiably, identifiably game-like, but built with ideas and systems from across the entire gen, genre spectrum, like uh, uh, motorbike parkour, um, <laughs> uh, skateboard metroidvania. I love it. Um, yeah, just like... You can almost just jam things. two unexpected things next to each other and I'm going to find that entertaining at this point. It's just <laughs> great. Yeah, I, I I spent quite a while just trying to figure out if I took these two genres, these two <laughs> ridiculous genres, and put them together, what would happen? I'm imagining the um, parkour one a bit like Prince of Persia, but with motorbikes. <laughs> yeah, it's it basically came from me constantly driving motorcycles off buildings in Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> Relatable. Relatable. <laughs> And when you're playing games, um, what are some of your favourite games to play that have trans or non-binary protagonists? Um, so, uh, right up front is Celestial Hacker Girl Jessica, which is by Girlsoft. Um, all of these are on itch, by the way. Um, Celestial Hacker Girl Jessica is... What a great name. A, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's great. Girlsoft makes great games. Um, and... Social Hacker Girl Jessica is a um, what is it, Marble Madness type game. Um, Jessica is a marble, but she is trans. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's just, it's it's fun. It's it's got such a girl soft vibe. Is the thing like those games are their games are unmistakable. Um, there's also Butterfly Soup, which is by Brianna Lay. Um, this is a visual novel, and it's just so sweet and romantic and hilarious <laughs> um it is like uh if, if there's like one thing you play it has to be butterfly soup honestly beautiful um, beautiful names too yeah yeah um there's one night hot springs by npc uh, npc kc uh which this one's about uh a it's basically about a trans girl going to hot springs with her friend and like in Japan and like it's light it's comfy it's cute it's sweet uh. but it also deals with like the reality of like being trans in Japan which there are some unique like specific things to being trans in Japan um, that like it talks about and gets into and, and discusses without getting too heavy yeah, and an onsen is already such a codified environment, so that that mm. sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's it's really like um, it, it encapsulates a lot in in a pretty 
short experience. Love that. Um, we and... shouldn't we shouldn't forget to mention some of your other games, which are a little bit more slapstick, shall we say? Um, uh, yes. Had great fun exploring your slap games. You're up to slap game slap four, games, yes. and any any slap uh, yes. that um, or any game that I guess gets a Christmas special release <laughs> is obviously a bit of a fan favourite. Is that what you're finding? Uh, yeah, I, 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 the slap game is such a, uh, it is a, it is a personal favorite, honestly. <laughs> um, do you want to describe to our audience what, what the slap game concept is? So basically, um, in slap game, a game where slap, <laughs> that's pretty much it. Like you basically, it, it, it was basically just me getting through a, a, a creative block by saying, what if there was a game and you slap things and it's just physics and I'll, <laughs> I'll I'll make as much as I want to make and then when I get bored of it, I'll release it as is as long as it runs. Well, I believe people have done this in real life now, haven't they? You know, they send you into a room where you can just break everything apparently. Really? Yeah. I need to get to one of those. Yeah. That sounds extremely sad because one of the most satisfying things in slap game is was um, slapping the bottles which shatter against anything. Um, and then in the Christmas version, I basically just I was like, that was the most fun thing. What if everything just breaks? Like it's all just it's, you're just <laughs> in a giant Christmas tree with giant uh, Christmas lights and you slap them and they explode and it's great. Well, I I think we should probably leave it on that one because we've put so many games out there that people should explore. You can explore Fen's work at fenreliania.itch.io and also check out fenreliania.com. We'll tweet out those links so that you can find them easily. And do find out about the International Trans Day of Visibility as well at tdov.org.au. There's lots of cool information there. Thanks so much for speaking with us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. It's been awesome. And a big thanks to Maze for helping produce that segment for us. Hey, a quick audience warning for the next two minutes for little ears. You might not want to hear this story, so you might want to temporarily just quickly turn us down for a bit of cheekiness. We did talk a bit about NFTs, non-fungible art tokens, uh, tonight. And there has been a very creative use of the NFT. Dan, what's it all about? So um, there has been a website set up that will... uh do give give you I suppose instructions on how to uh, turn and make an NFT out of some unsolicited dick pics. So if you have received um, an image of some genitalia from someone who you were hoping not to receive an image of genitalia from, you can now uh, go to nftthedp.com <laughs> and. Uh, make it into something that no one really wants. Now, now we are not encouraging anyone to do this because there's actually laws against this in our country. Um, yes. It's it's problematic. You do not share images of people without their consent. It's absolutely bad. It is a little funny, though. One of my um, favourite tweets ever is Maddie Holden's um, uh, a dick is abundant and of low value, so it sounds like um, <laughs> this is a... Uh, 
Switching that up. And uh, with the NFT side, also bad for the environment. That's so it. let's how, not do that. How to commodify the possession of almost 50% of the population. I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy with that. Absolutely. <laughs> well, um, back to our regular child safe programming. Turn your volume back up. <laughs> it should be fine. No one's going to get that message, but hopefully <laughs> they will have protected the ears. We're at the event section of the show. Uh, Web Directions Hover Conference, which is for CSS... Uh, lovers, front-end developers who work primarily in CSS, this is the conference to go to. It's on April 23rd and 30th, virtually, and the early bird pricing um, ends this Friday. So if you want to get tickets beginning from 145 presumably for students or concession, and um, slightly more otherwise, then go to webdirections.org slash hover. They do put on amazingly practical conferences with some of the the best um, speakers on these topics in the world, Uh, particularly right now. It's a great opportunity to speak to experts in the space. So it's kind of cool. Absolutely. Um, You can speak to some more experts or hear from some more experts at the 17th International Conference on Technology, Knowledge and Society, which is happening uh, next uh, Wednesday and Thursday, I believe, uh, the 8th and 9th of April, Um, considering viral technologies, pandemic-driven opportunities and challenges. Yeah, that's their theme this year. It's It's, pretty pretty meaty. It is. It's it's, it's, I think it's a lot of us. Um, <laughs> it, you can get an audience pass for, I think it says $100 US dollars or $50 US dollars if you're a student. Um, if you head to techandsock.com slash 2021 and hyphen conference, um, we'll tweet out a link to that because that was just really hard to uh, write down. Will we tweet it out or do you just say that and then I tweet it out maybe if I get enough done tonight? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Can, can you take that one on? Uh, maybe I need the Twitter password back. Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe. we need to yeah. share this around. We do, we do. Um, there's a lot of promises being made. <laughs> uh, hey, a big thank you to our guests this evening. We spoke with Professor Yang Xiang from Swinburne University and Fen Reliania, a trans and non-binary game maker with amazing games on itch.io. Well worth checking out. We will tweet that one, I promise. Big thank you to our hosts tonight, Joe Eaton, Dan Salmon, I've been Vanessa DeHolger. It's been great being with you. Thanks to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy. Hi, this is Vanessa DeHolker. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. 